The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and I just have to say that this week it really struck me. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't always have time to listen to every one that I'm subscribed to. So the fact that you're listening now, I just wanted you to know that it means the world to me. I know this probably begs the question, what do I listen to? Well, in a nutshell, I listen to The Daily, Pantsuit Politics, COVID Daily News, Here to Make Friends, America Adapts, and don't judge, but my favorite guilty pleasure, Trashy Divorce, because we cannot always be serious all the time. But here's the thing, I cannot possibly listen to every episode of every podcast because I do things like work full time and parent a teenager. So I have to pick and choose. And with all that said, I just want to thank you for choosing the Eco Right Speaks. Today, I'm bringing you my conversation with e news reporter Evan Lehman. He and I are going to talk about climate change and reminisce a little bit about when I was in the Senate and also talk about the vice presidential debate. Evan and I go back to my days on the Hill, and I look forward to sharing our catch-up with you. But first, whose line is it anyway? You know how it goes by now. I read a quote to my colleagues, and they have to guess who said it. Full disclosure, I gave them a hint this time, so let's see if it helped them figure it out. But first, here's the quote. The question is, how much damage will be done before we start taking concrete action? And the answer from our executive director, Bob Inglis. I'm thinking that it might have been George H.W. Bush who said, the question is, how much damage will be done before we start taking concrete action? The answer from our engagement director, Wen Lee. I have no idea. Um, Carlos Curbelo. And finally, the answer from your very own producer, Price Atkinson. Wow, this is a tough one. Maybe the toughest yet. You did give us a hint that it was an older quote. So I'm going to say George H.W. Bush. The answer was the late senator from Arizona, John McCain. Senator McCain was one of the first Republicans to raise alarm about climate change. Back in 2003, let that date sink in for a second, 2003, he co-sponsored the Climate Stewardship Act with his pal, Senator Joe Lieberman. For those who don't do math, 2003 was 17 years ago. My second son wasn't even born. Also, a gallon of gas cost $1.59, which doesn't really feel that different from where we are today, but a movie was six bucks. Remember movies? Anyway, if you had told me 17 years ago that we'd still be fighting for an economy-wide solution to climate change, I probably wouldn't have believed you. An ode to Bob on his birthday. We know without him saying what birthday gift he wants, a country led by someone not the monster whose Twitter taunts. Alas, we have no power except for casting our vote. A delayed birthday surprise we hope our efforts do promote. 
then maybe, who knows, is carbon pricing on the table? Once the deniers are out, climate solutions are more than fable. Until then, we wait, virtually eat cake with Bob for his day, looking forward to the moment when we won, we all can say. Happy birthday, Bob. We hope all your wishes come true. And now, my conversation with Evan Lehman. As promised, I'm here with Evan Lehman from ENE News. Evan, it's so good to see you. Thanks for having me. I am actually seeing, we are seeing each other, listeners. I know you don't get that advantage, um, but the power of Zoom, we're all on Zoom a lot these days, unfortunately. So I asked Evan to come on the show because he and I actually go way back, and I was trying to date without looking it up when you started covering um, envir- the environment beat for the Hill. And I think I was working for Senator Warner maybe when we had our first interactions or maybe it was right after Warner left the Hill, but how long have you been on this beat? So I came to E&E um, in 2008 in the throes of climate legislation and um, back when Republicans were still talking about those kinds of things. And um, and I was covering insurance and climate change to begin with under John Fiocca, the editor of Climate Wire at the time. You know, when you are a Senate staffer, you never want to be in the news and you never, I mean, you certainly don't ever want your name. You know, you want to be that um, that source, maybe if your boss has approved for you to be a source or maybe not. I'm sure there are plenty of people who um, who speak on the record without getting permission, but I'm a rule follower. But I do recall being um, granted permission to talk to you a couple of times. And then when I left the Hill, having more conversations. And so what is that process like? Before we, um, I promised our listeners we would talk a little about the debate, but I just think it would be interesting for them to know how you go about chasing a story when you're dealing with lawmakers. And maybe sometimes those lawmakers don't want to go on the record. How how do you get in and talk to staff and, and get the sources that you get without giving away all your trade secrets, of course? Well, you know, those are, those are really good questions. Um, and, you know, it comes down to putting in a lot of phone calls and, um, you know, going up on the hill and, you know, talking with lawmakers when you can. And, um, you know, that's something that, you know, that we do a lot and that, um, is really useful, you know? I mean, reporters have just a lot of access on the Hill and lawmakers are often very helpful, you know, in, in talking about the issues that they want to. And, and, and oftentimes they'll, you know, go on background or, you know, talk off record about those things. Um, so, um, you know, so, so the, you know, lawmakers are the best source. Um, you know, cultivating aides and advisors is also a great way to do it. And that takes a lot of work uh, and, um, you know, you know, takes time. And A job like yours is very dependent on people and that interpersonal, those interpersonal relationships. So being restricted right now, not being able to go up to Capitol Hill, how has that challenged what you do? So we do have reporters still going to the Hill, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's not nearly as frequent and, um, you know, it's an entirely sort of different atmosphere, but um, it's still happening. Um, But, 
you know, so it, you know, it's down to Zoom, it's down to, you know, this, this kind of interaction and phone calls. Um, and to be honest, phone calls have always been, you know, sort of the, the, the dominant medium anyway. Um, so in some ways it's not as bad as I feared that it would be. Um, you know, when we went home in mid-March and haven't gone back to the newsroom since then, um, you know, I, I had a lot of apprehension about, you know, how, you know, how, how, how would we, we'd get stories and the quality of those stories and things like that. But, you know, it hasn't stopped at all. We've, you know, we've been writing maybe more stories than ever. So I do sort of think that cross um, disciplines that this has been a great period to demonstrate that we can work from home. And as someone who has worked from home since 2013, I had friends before COVID who I think they thought I didn't really work. And they would ask me to do things in the middle of the day. I'm like, you know, I actually have a job. It just doesn't require going to a physical office space. And now that everyone's in this boat, I think there's, you know, it's sort of like we've proven that we can do this. And I wonder how much we'll go back into having that kind of centralized workspace once it's safe to do so. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and there's also climate implications with that, right, in terms of transportation and, um, and you know, and home emissions and things like that. But. Right. Uh, we brought you on today to do a little um, talking about the vice presidential debate, which was on Tuesday. So uh, we are referring to the vice presidential debate that was held on October 7th. And climate change was a question, which I was, you know, I'm always pleased to see that we had a few dry presidential cycles uh, in 2012 and 2016. The issue didn't come up. Um, you know, kind of bringing it back to where when we were talking about 2008, that was until um, the presidential debate a few weeks ago, 2008 was the last time that climate change had come up, which I'm sure you're aware of. Um, so here you have, you know, two sides that have very different approaches to what to do on climate change. And you know, some of the buzzwords that I guess I would throw out is um, Green New Deal <laughs> has become in my brain kind of the new cap and trade, <laughs> which, of course, got bastardized to cap and tax when I was working on the Lieberman Warner bill. And I feel like whether you're for the Green New Deal or not, you know, it's a really easy thing to kind of lob at a Democratic candidate that whether they support it or not. And I felt like Senator Harris many times said, you know, that that Vice President Biden does not support the Green New Deal. But I don't know, it's like one of those buzzwords. So, you know, Vice President Pence was able to take that word and throw it out there. And, and I guess what I would say or what I'm asking you to ponder a little bit is how much do these key words that the candidates like to use latch into the viewers' minds and hang there and, and, and maybe even make them sway one way or the other? Well, that's, that's a really good question. Um, and I don't know if I know the answer to those things. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, um, I, you know, I think Pence, for his part, you know, used it um, shrewdly. And, you know, he was a very disciplined debater, as you noted. And, 
you know, he kept coming back to the Green New Deal over and over again, and maybe even more than the Green New Deal, he came back to fracking. Um, and, you know, you know, these days when we talk about an audience of one, you know, I think that audience, when he talks about fracking, is Pennsylvania, right? Which is, you know, all about, um, you know, which is obviously a lot of natural gas in that state and is, you know, is uh, crucial to the path of re-election for the president. So, um, you know, I mean, you know, I think this is, I think this is an election that will hinge on how many people, you know, actually believe his claims around um, Biden and fracking. And, um, and when you mentioned keywords, uh, I think ban is, uh, it, you know, the word banning and bans is a huge um, keyword that is being used in this election cycle. And, um, you know, and I, and I felt like Senator Harris really broke the fourth wall to say, you know, a President Biden would not ban fracking, which I have to say, you know, I have friends on, you know, the right and the left, and I heard that there were some grumblings from the left that she was so direct about saying that. But um, something else that Pence said that kind of stuck with me is he threw back climate science and said that they would take the lead of what the science says on climate change, which I kind of went a little like, because it was just last month that President Trump said that um, he didn't think the science actually knew what was happening when he was getting that wildfire briefing in California. So, you know, here you have Vice President, President Pence trying to say, hey, you know, we're, we'll do what the science says, but they question the science. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of incongruity and, in, you know, and, you know, between the president and the vice president's statement over the past few weeks and, um, you know, I, I, I think that um, it was pretty close to um, a lie, you know, when president or when vice president, it's pretty clear that, you know, Pence was dissembling when he said that they adhere to climate science because um, what he then said after that, you know, does not align with what climate scientists say. In fact, you know, he, he mentioned um, you know, he mentioned reduced emissions related to natural gas. Um, and that's all he said, right? Um, but, you know, he didn't talk about renewable energy. He didn't talk about direct air capture of carbon. He didn't talk about transportation emissions and how you reduce those things. You know, all he essentially said was that natural gas had risen and the reason for those reduced emissions because of that rise was that coal is no longer online. Who do you think watches debates? And do you think that when people are, are people who take the time to watch a debate like that already decided, do you think, or are there really undecided voters watching an event like that? Uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't know, but I don't, I don't think there are very many. Right. I mean, I think if you take the time to watch those debates, if you're keyed into those things and interested in them, you've, you know, you've made up your mind a long time ago. And, um, you know, so I, I tend to think that, you know, debates just don't move the needle very much in terms of an electorate, but um, maybe some, you know, and, and maybe they have, you know, maybe they, you know, have a, uh, a motivating factor. Maybe they help people get out and vote or, you know, maybe what Trump says will get, you know, a handful of Democrats mad enough to go vote where they otherwise wouldn't or vice versa. Or, you know, maybe a handful of Republicans will vote because, because of Biden's policies or something. Um, but, 
but yeah, mostly I think it's, you know, entertainment because uh, there's just not a lot of policy involved in these debates and um, we just don't learn very much from them. Well, it's almost like cramming for the biggest test of your life, right? They, these aren't people who are doing the day-to-day -day policy and, you know, somebody that has staffed senators in the past, they did not know every component that was in every bill they've introduced. They got the gist of it and whatever, but it is a, a staff level where you're kind of digging in deep on those policy levels. So, so the next debate was moved, uh, the presidential debate was moved to virtual and then President Trump said he would not participate. And I saw today that he's now saying that he will bring a doctor's note, which um, kind of made me laugh because, you know, we're both parents, kids in school, you have to bring the doctor's note to get your kid back in school. And, and that just sort of made me laugh a little to think about the leader of the free world getting a note <laughs> to go back to the debate. Do you think it'll happen or do you think that we're done with the debate stage for this cycle? Uh, I mean, I think there's a 90% chance that Trump debates, you know, I mean, I, I just, I don't think he can, you know, take himself out of the spotlight. Um, and, and I also think that it's going to become increasingly clear over the next week, which I think accounts for about 25% of the remaining days before the election that, you know, his poll numbers are really bad and he's going to have to do whatever he has to do to try and win this thing. And, um, you know, I think getting in front of the American public and, you know, putting a, uh, putting a, uh, a show of his life of, of a show of uh, a lifetime, you know, uh, in front of the American public is going to be crucial for him to win. So, you know, right after I said that, I don't think debates move, move the needle any, I think that he's going to have to uh, do it anyway. And, you know, and try and pull this thing out with whatever showmanship he can. Uh, well, I thank you for your perspective and your thoughts. Um, one last question that I did not uh, tell you that I was going to throw out there because I just thought of it, but um, we have seen a demonization of the media. And, you know, I'm the daughter of a journalist. And at one point early in my life, thought about going that path when uh, other things kind of obstructed me from it, but a lot of respect for what you do. And uh, I, I know that I take very seriously how I get my news and especially in today's world where it's so easy to throw something on social media or click on something that has a kind of a sexy title. Um, I try to not share something unless I've read the entire article and I feel like I trust the source. So what would you say to a listener to kind of advise them when they're digesting of so many ways to digest news, so many different, um, you know, things coming at them? What, what would you suggest they do to ensure that the news they're getting is accurate and to have faith and trust that the people behind those stories did their due diligence? Well, that's a really good question. And thank you for your compliments of our industry. That means a lot these days. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a, a level of uh, internet literacy that everybody needs to have these days. Um, and, you know, you need to work on that. Um, and, you know, you know, really, um, you know, check your sources. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, as you said, you know, demonization of mainstream media, but, um, you know, it's mainstream media for a reason, and that's because it's good at what it does, and it's trusted and has been for 
you know, years and decades and centuries in some cases. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think that mostly everybody should just subscribe to E&E News. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You get so many things. You get the green wire and the climate wire. And <laughs> throw your pitch in. It's good. It's good. <laughs> Tell our listeners how to subscribe. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, uh, you know, I mean, the, the soup, the soup of, uh, of information these days, is just incredible. Um, and, um, and it's hard, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to know what you're reading sometimes. And, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know that, you know, you know, that post you read on Facebook is, you know, been posted by somebody who, you know, is manipulating, you know, the truth and, and things like that. And, um, but, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the world we live in these days. So yeah, you've got to just be cautious and, you know, make your, draw your own conclusions too. So, and with that, I thank you again for your time and for all that you do and uh, this little catch up that we had, and uh, it would be great to have you back sometime. Well, I'd love to. Thanks for having me. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Welcome back, listeners. I'm so pleased to bring you today two of our republicen.org spokespeople, Ben Matolo and Jacob Abel. Hi, guys. How are you? Doing good. How are you? Great. Um, so both of these um, gentlemen were featured in an article um, written by Climate Inside News, which I did feature in our Week in Review a couple of weeks ago, and I will include in the show notes. In this article, you were both interviewed. The, the thrust of the article was about being a climate voter and about young conservative voters who were kind of looking for their footing in this election. And I didn't know either of you were being interviewed, so it always makes my day when I find an article and I see one of uh, one or more of our community interviewed. But what you know, when you are looking at um, at the ballot, what you know, what are you looking for? What are you looking for in climate policy, or you know, how how high up does that rate when you're trying to decide who to cast your votes for? Would you like to go first, Jacob? Sure, I'll go first. Thank you. Um, so definitely when I'm looking at the ballot, it's it's one of my top one or two issues. It's not the only issue I vote on. I'm not like a single issue voter when it comes to climate, but it's one of my top one or two issues. Uh, I'm just looking for reasonable solutions. Um, I'm not looking for someone who's going out there advocating for the Green New Deal or, you know, spending trillions of taxpayer dollars. You know, I'm looking for reasonable uh, market-based solutions um, for at any level, anyone who's talking about uh, climate, whether it's the president or a uh, local city council member. So that's, that's really the, the top things I'm looking for. How about you, Ben? Yeah, I mean, uh, Jacob hit the nail on the head. Um, I'm certainly a climate voter as well. I consider myself to be a climate voter. But I think that being a conservative climate voter is a little bit more multifaceted because, you know, while I'm looking for someone, I, I believe that inaction on climate would jeopardize our future. But I also believe that poorly thought out climate action would jeopardize our future as well. Um, and so it's a it's a tight rope to walk between, you know, voting for someone who might act on climate, but in a way that I might not necessarily find to be all that productive versus no action at all. Jacob, I'd love to just chat for a second. You, um, I don't believe that this one ever got published, but you had written about um, the danger of the deficit. 
So mm-hmm. we have the national deficit being what it is. And oftentimes, I know Bob Inglis talks about the, the environmental deficit as well. Mm-hmm. And you really did a good job at kind of threading the needle of, you know, what we can't afford to have happen, which is climate gone unchecked. And I would love it if you could just spend a few seconds uh, describing to our listeners what the thesis of your argument is. Sure. So that one's still in the works, but kind of my basic sort of thesis for that was, you know, we have these two very big problems. Climate change is obviously getting a lot of attention, but the national debt is something that's not really talked about at this point by either major party, which is disappointing. Um, But, you know, we're spending a billion dollars a day uh, in the interest on our debt. So that's just going to continue to grow and continue to, you know, strap our government fiscally and be able to respond. It's going to make it harder for them to respond to any challenge. And I, I think climate change is going to dwarf COVID when it comes to the cost both in lives and um, spending resources. So, you know, if we're not tackling, I think, both these problems at the same time um, with solutions like carbon pricing, which are fiscally responsible, I think it could really hurt us in the long run because I think both these problems are more connected than people realize. Yeah, for sure. I agree with you. It's it's really hard when you start to think about even if you're you're comparing your own personal budget and then looking at the scale of the national um, deficit. And I forget, was it in this piece where we talk about what one trillion means and it's like one trillion is a number? And I think we have a really hard time as humans imagining the scope of how big something is. So one trillion seconds is 32,000 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you think about trillions of dollars in the, in that context, it really, in my mind anyway, like starts to kind of escalate, like the, we're talking about real money. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, I think it's because it's so big and it's almost too abstract for people to even realize how big it is. And I think when you have both people now saying, well, it's just, it's kind of happening. We'll just have to let it happen and we'll have to focus on other things. I think people, you know, kind of just forget about it, but it's still sort of that elephant in the room, just growing and growing and growing. And one day, you know, that bubble's going to burst. Right. Well, and, and Ben, I think that one thing to what Jacob is just saying, and just from, you know, I know you and you've worked with us closely, climate change is not just an environmental issue. It's a so many other issues issue. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd absolutely agree with that. I, I think one of the biggest problems with environmental policy is we get so confused about what our goals actually are, because there's a lot of really well-meaning government-led, publicly funded programs that are meant to lower emissions, um, but wouldn't actually achieve that end. And so I think that we have to be honest with ourselves when we call something climate policy. Is this actually meant to lower emissions or is this going to simply kneecap our own economy while we let other world emitters continue to do whatever they want? Um, and so, I mean, that thought alone brings in like that has foreign policy connotations, that has economic connotations, that has budgetary connotations. And so, yeah, I mean, climate change transcends simply the environmental effects of a changing climate, um, but also, you know, the effect on our nation as a whole. Yeah, I um, definitely think that when you put it that way, it just makes the border adjustable, revenue neutral carbon tax that Bob is always talking about 
seem all the more rational and um, not that I needed convincing, but convinces me more and more that that is the approach that we need to take. The Climate Leadership Council just came out with a report, and I haven't read it yet. It's hot off the presses, but basically they look at the opportunities created by having a um, border, especially a border-adjustable carbon fee um, in terms of the international cooperation that we need um, when we're addressing this issue. So I will be sure to forward that report on to both of you. Any last words to our listeners before I let you get on with your days? Uh, I I guess one thing I would say coming off the presidential debate last night is that there's, I think it was made kind of obvious that there's still a middle ground for reasonable solutions when it comes to addressing climate change. Um, So I think if you know, there's still room for a lot of very reasonable people to get involved and, you know, make change on this issue. Um, I would say that if you're, again, coming off the presidential debate last night, if you're serious about fighting climate change, never be afraid to ask the hard questions. Because if someone comes up to you and says, we're going to cut emissions um, down to zero by 2050 or lower emissions in the energy sector to zero by 2035, never be afraid to ask how, because Oftentimes, I feel as though those promises are hollow or have a cost that is, you know, incredible to bear. So I think if we're serious about solving climate change, it's all about asking the right questions. Day Kappa is a nonprofit service-focused organization on the Palm Beach Atlantic University campus. We organize monthly service projects for our members to participate in. And on October 17th, we will be hosting a beach cleanup. With service opportunities being more challenging during this time of COVID-19, outdoor projects like this allow us to limit our risk of exposure while still impacting both the environment around our local beaches and the community who enjoys them. Keeping our beaches clean is especially important while we are still in turtle nesting season in Florida. We are in need of donations to purchase supplies, including grabbers, trash bags, and gloves. We intend to continue hosting beach cleanups in the upcoming months, so these resources will be used for future projects as well. We appreciate any contributions, and Beta Kappa thanks you for your support. Whew, Price, I am exhausted and exhilarated at the same time. (laughs) Here we are, number 18 in the books. Okay, what are you exhausted and what are you exhilarated about specifically? Okay, so I think I'm exhausted because we're fully in this, like, schools in session and, you know, we're working from home forever. (laughs) Not that that maybe is so different for the two of us, except that in the old days, I could take my office to a coffee shop or a restaurant or go kind of co-work with somebody. And now it's just my office, same day. It's a little like Groundhog's Day, I guess, and I'm finding that exhausting. And then I'm also exhilarated because when we started this, I thought, well, we'll see if we can get 10 episodes and we're inching up on 20 and that's really exciting. Yeah, it really is exciting. I thought you were going to say exhausted and uh, exhilarated by the politics right now with the election, Uh, exhausted with political ads and, and just overall political fatigue, but exhilarated that the finish line is near only a couple weeks away. So I was, I was totally wrong and totally off with. with Well, that is definitely like layer two. (laughs) Right. And I don't really see the political ads because one, I don't want to watch a lot of live TV in Maryland. So every once in a while I'll get a Virginia ad and usually it's 
um, the Mark Warner Senate race, which I didn't even realize he was in cycle, but which is weird to think because he replaced my old boss, John Warner, which means if Warner were still in office, he would be in cycle. But um, yeah, I don't really see the political ads here. Probably not like you do in South Carolina anyway. Not like uh, like we have here at Jamie Harrison, Lindsey Graham ad. Literally, you could have five in a row in that combination pro against. It could be any combination. It's I've never seen anything like it. Nothing like this ever in this state except for... Uh, primary season when we're one of the, the we're the first in the South primary. So this is this is really uncharted territory as far as general election and seeing a race that's in play. But I don't want to spend too much time on that. I'd rather spend more time on a couple of our um, spokesmen that you just had on in that very last segment. Ben Mutolo at uh, University at Syracuse University. Uh, and then Jacob Abel, also uh, an article they were quoted in Inside Climate News. Um, but two of our uh, young spokespeople and, and two people that have done great work for us and are, and are doing great work in their communities. They really have been great, consistent voices for us. And um, as you recall, Ben was an intern for us the summer of 2019 and was just so eager, so eager to work with us and Jacob has been a consistent, steady voice. He actually just got published um, again, which he's one of our more prolific writers. I will be sure to link not only the article that they were interviewed in that we um, that was the reason for my bringing them into that segment, but also I will link his most recent op-ed, which addresses a really important point price that I had not actually ever seen anyone write about before. And that doesn't mean that they haven't. It just hadn't seen it. And that was how our continuing, our burgeoning budget deficit is really going to hamstring our ability to respond to climate change when the, I can only think of a bad way to put this, but when the bleep hits the fan on climate. So um, he's just so smart and he really comes at this from an economic perspective and I can't wait for him to run for office. All right, Chelsea, we've got a lot of new listeners. I want to thank everybody that, that's tuned in and, and, and dialed in to, to check out the podcast. If you're brand new, thank you so much for, for giving us a try. hope you'll stay with us, certainly. Uh, for our longtime listeners, maybe who have been with us since Episode 1, Appreciate you all for for downloading, subscribing, and listening, which you can do Spotify, Apple, uh, Podcasts, iTunes, uh, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Wherever you find your podcast, basically, people, that is where you can find the Eco Right Speaks. And all you got to do is search Eco Right Speaks. Uh, you can listen to each episode right there. Also, you can subscribe. And if you're inclined, you can write a review, which we're still trying to get 100 for Chelsea's goal. And Chelsea, we got a, a really nice uh, review that somebody wrote on Apple Podcasts. They said, great podcast. This podcast gives me hope for our future. Keep up the amazing work. And listen, you don't have to be conservative to enjoy this podcast. I am looking at a review written by a self-described progressive independent who loves this podcast. And she says that she has 13-year-old twin daughters and is married to a wonderful conservative who happens to love John Kasich. And she was really inspired by our episode featuring Mr. Curtis, which was last weekend. She says, now I want to meet him and hike with him. (laughs) 
And I really, really want to hear so much more about the trust-based relationships that exist in Congress from those who are making progress. I think that's a really key line. Yep. Um, she also says that she feels like she's too old for the Sunrise Movement, but she would love to be part of a bipartisan organization of parents wanting to help clean up the mess. And as a parent, I totally can um, relate to that. So that was from Janet Kay in Massachusetts, if you're listening. We love that this podcast can touch somebody who it might not be their exact ideology, but maybe they know someone's who it is, who does match with that. And regardless, we are all in, in this mess together. And so the more that we're all working together to clean it up, the more successful that we will be. Uh, also, some new members who have signed on, which you can do at Republican.org slash join. Stand with us. Aaron B. in Ohio, Nancy E. in Virginia, Margaret G. Texas, Andy D. in Pennsylvania, and Justin S. in Colorado. Thank you all for, for signing on. doesn't cost you anything. We don't spam you. We don't to go crazy with ask or anything like that. It sure is. So if you're out there and maybe you're like Janet, you know somebody who... Um, identifies with where we're coming from and you want to be part of our community, all it takes is going to our website, joining with us. And aside from the podcast, you will hear from me every Friday. You'll get an email in your inbox that um, summarizes the week's uh, EcoRight Climate News. And so many people, all um, parts of the spectrum, tell me how much they appreciate that if you're on the left side of the spectrum, it's good for that community to know that there are people on the right side of the spectrum who are doing climate work. So it helps, hopefully, I hope, Price, that it helps bridge the partisan gap a little and then also helps inspire those who are on the center right, especially those who think that they're alone, to let them know they're not alone. There are people out there who are like them and identify with them. And so anyway, all right, uh, as we get out of here, happy birthday to our fearless leader, Robert Durden English. That poem in Ode to Bob that you that you made up uh, was awesome, and it was super cool. And I know Bob, I think, really liked it, but I know we want to send a special happy birthday out to our fearless leader and executive director, Bob English. Yes, happy birthday, Bob. A little bit late. It was on Sunday. But also, I mean, you complimented my poem. <laughs> but holy cow, Jack Pleasant's song. I want him to sing happy birthday to me. And I really wish we could share it with our listeners because he has a beautiful voice. He's taken his hours down with us so that he can work on producing music. And now I understand why. <laughs> so just really fun to be able to celebrate Bob in these small ways while we can't sit in the room with him and have cake we can find other ways to honor him on his special day all right guys we'll do it again next week until then stay safe out there and uh, we'll see you again next week yeah be sure to tune in thanks for listening to this week's edition of the eco right speaks podcast brought to you by the team at republicen.org Make sure to visit republicen.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader. 